Hebrews chapter 6, starting at verse 13. I am changing the text uh, here. Just We looked at Hosea 6 last week, so uh, we'll, we'll look at this one tonight. <clears throat> Hebrews 6, verse 13. For when God <clears throat> made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have... as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then page 923, chapter 7, lower right hand, Side of the page, chapter 7 of God's covenant with man. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam, and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. This covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ the testator and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, 
circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all four signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. Number six, under the gospel, when Christ, the substance was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace, differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Amen. Now, we have been talking about covenant theology a bit last week, and as uh, Dr. Ligon Duncan, who I'm getting a lot of this material from, some of this is coming from his lecture notes to Reformed Seminary students, he says a covenant is hard to understand. It's kind of like defining your mother. Um, It is hard to define, but yet at the same time, It is so significant to our life and to our well-being. Ligon Duncan notes that covenant theology helps us to bridge two different important sections of theology. One is anthropology and the other is soteriology. Anthropology, boys and girls, is the study of man before God. Soteriology is where we study salvation. One of the things that covenant theology does is it bridges those two disciplines. It, as man is fallen and a sinner, and we learn how uh, we fall short of the grace and glory of God in, as a man, <clears throat> salvation tells us about how we are saved. Covenant theology, though, explains how you get from the fallen state to the state of salvation. From the fall of Adam in the garden to the glorification of men and women in the new heavens and the new earth. And so God's covenantal uh, redemptive design is the means by which God saves us. Or to put it very simply, I've heard Dr. Ferguson, who was one of my professors in seminary, say that covenant theology is how the Bible itself is explained. It is God explains the scriptures to us by way of this relationship that he has with his people. And that relationship that he has with his people is established by way of these covenants. And so this is an important concept for us. Now, as many of you know, not all of our evangelical brethren share this viewpoint. There is a Another viewpoint that 
began in the 1830s and has continued to this day, though I would suggest that it has been waning uh, in its influence. I think covenant theology actually in the last probably 20 years has been uh, waxing and growing um, and, and dispensational theology has been losing, and I, it, we could talk about why that is, um, but <clears throat> nevertheless, there, not everybody agrees uh, with how we are to understand the Scripture from the Old to the New Testament. The concept, as I said last week, of the covenant is not exclusive to the Bible. We find in ancient manuscripts outside the Scripture covenants being written out and, and established um, but nevertheless, those covenants, uh, said Burkhoff, I was reading Burkhoff this afternoon, and Burkhoff says that those covenants, though, come because of the covenant relationship God has with man. Uh, that that the, the covenants that men have with each other stem from the covenant that God has with men. So we, for example, can see, look at Genesis chapter 26. And verse 18, Genesis chapter 26, uh, we see a covenant being made between Isaac and his neighbors. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 26, and look at verse 18. Genesis 26 and verse 18. Then Isaac dug again the wells of water which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the same names which his father had given them. So boys and girls, so just so you understand, Isaac is digging wells that his father had dug up, but the Philistines, remember, are those unbelievers who are neighbors, and they're doing bad things to Isaac, okay? So they, out of their jealousy of Isaac, they are filling these wells up, and, and there's a dispute. <clears throat> but when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac. And they said, this water is ours. So he named the well Esek because they contended with him. Esek means en enmity in Hebrew. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over it, and he named it Sitna. He moved away from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he named it Rehoboth, for he said, at last the Lord has made room for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. So he's having conflict with his neighbors. <clears throat> he finally gets to a place where he digs a well, and there's no dispute over it. Then listen to verse 23 here. Then, the, then he went up from there to Beersheba. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear you, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he reiterates to Isaac the promise that he had made when he established the covenant with Abraham. You remember that God had promised Abraham to be the father of many nations. And in order to secure that promise in Abraham's mind, 
he had Abraham divide the animals, and God passed through the carved animals. The reason for this is that the word covenant comes from the Hebrew word bereath, which means to cut. And often there was a cutting ceremony in the, in the covenant uh, establishment. And so Abraham cuts these animals, signifying that God, as he passes through, uh, saying, if I'm not faithful to this promise, may it be done so to me, that I would be divided as these animals and the carcass of these animals on either side. So God is reiterating this promise to Isaac here that he made when he made the covenant with his father. Now, here we see another covenant, though, that Isaac makes with his neighbor. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with his advisor, Ahuzath, and Phicol, the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, since you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So they see God's blessing on his life. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you, and have done you to you, excuse me, have done to you nothing but good, sort of, <laughs> And have sent you away in peace. You are sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So they made a feast. They ate and they drank. In the morning they arose and they exchanged oaths, promises. Then Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. Now it came about on the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug. And they said to him, we have found water. So here we see a covenant that Isaac makes um, with his neighbors. So covenants were something that would have been familiar to believers and unbelievers alike. Many uh, historians and theologians point to what is known as the suzerain vassal treaties. Here, a great king would uh, make a covenant with the people, and if the people would financially support him with a tithe, uh, from their produce and offer their sons uh, for mi temporary military service, he would give them the protection that they needed. Uh, we see in Joshua, I think we, we referenced this last time, uh, in chapters 9 and 10, that Joshua made a covenant with the Gibeonites. Now, he was supposed to have consulted God before he did this, but he didn't, and the Gibeonites had tricked that Joshua and, and the people of Israel, they said, oh, we're from far, far away. Look, you know, this bread was fresh when we left home and these sandals were brand new. And now look at our tattered clothes and how dry our bread is. And they were lying, uh, boys and girls, uh, to Israel to try and pretend that they lived far away when they lived actually very close. But nevertheless, uh, Joshua, though he didn't consult God, he made a covenant with them and that covenant was binding upon them. So, now, a covenant, is, there is confusion because we use a lot of terms for covenant. Sometimes we use the word covenant. Sometimes we use the word testament. Sometimes we speak of federal theology. Why do we use all these different terms for this? Well, 
it all goes back to the Tower of Babel. <laughs> the, the reason you have all these different terms and different words for the same concept is because, in, as we said, in Hebrew, you have the word berit, all right, to cut a covenant. But um, when the Jews were scattered um, and, and went into the Greco-Roman world, and over time, as happens to immigrants, they lost their first language. And so as their Hebrew was waning, they knew Greek, and so eventually they had to have a Bible translated into Greek for them to read and understand in the synagogue and, and at home. And, and they call this the Septuagint. Well, the Septuagint took the word berit, which is the one Hebrew word, and they divided it in giving two words for it. Diatheke and synthenke. Synthenke. S-Y-N-T-H-E-K-E and diatheke. D-I-A-T-H-E-K-E. And um, some of this has to do with their understanding of covenants whether they are um, covenants that are, if you will, between equals and a covenant that is one above and, and, and beneath. To make matters more complicated, the Romans then, remember Rome conquers Greece, the Romans see these two words for covenant, and they take one of them, diatheke, and they translate it into their Latin in three ways. So you have berit at the top of the pyramid. It's divided into Greek, into two words. And then one of those two words is divided into three Latin words. One Latin word is testamentum. You probably can hear the English word that we derive from that. That's where we get the English word boys and girls, testament. And so when your Bible says Old Testament, New Testament, it's really saying Old Covenant, New Covenant. Um, that is just the Latin word that we use for diatheke and berit. But the Romans uh, used another word, pactum, P-A-C-T-U-M. That's where we get the word pact, to make a, a pact or a covenant. And then phodus uh, or foidus, which uh, is spelled F-O-E-D-U-S, foidus. This is where we get the English word federal. So we, and, and these concepts are with us today. So we have a federal, a government, which receives its name because it was a government, is a government created by the states via a covenant. The states came together and created this covenant. And they said, we, the states, will give this central government certain powers that will be explicitly revealed in the Constitution, and those that are not explicitly in the Constitution, all those others will be reserved for the states. Um, the powers that we are give to the federal government are delegated covenantally. At least this is the way it works in theory, right? Uh, and we, the states, will financially uh, support the federal government. Of course, you know what's happened in history is the federal government now is taking all the power and reserves for itself whatever it wants, and it will delegate back to the states whatever it thinks the states can handle. We're not here for a history lesson, though. 
but so that you understand that our system of government, in theory, as it was drawn up by Madison, was a covenantal government. Okay, we were the 13 colonies, the 13 states were agreeing together to form this central entity uh, there. Now, the word diatheke can be used to speak both of covenants and testaments. Now, the difference being that a covenant is usually something that is done between those that are living. A testament is something that is binding upon the death of one party. So some of you who have wills, you may realize, you know, you look at the preamble or whatever, and it may speak about this is my last will and testament. That is, this will goes into effect upon my death here. Um, But it is appropriate for us to speak of the Old and New Covenants in the Bible. Now, as I said last week, the word covenant is found around 300 times in the Bible, about 280 to 90 times in the Old Testament, 30 times in the New Testament. Now, we have to be careful when we do word studies because word studies alone um, cannot... They, they can be helpful, let me say that. Word studies and word counts can be helpful, but it doesn't necessarily mean or explain everything. That is, as we've seen last week, sometimes the word itself might not be there, but the, the meaning of it is there. The substance of it, the theology of it is there, if the word is not. So yeah, you do have to be careful, um, you know, I think Ligon Duncan mentions that he and a friend were studying together the book of Matthew while they were in graduate school or so. And, and um, his friend said, you know, I think faith is a major theme of the book of Matthew. And Ligon, who had uh, been studying this book and had done the word count, said, well, actually, faith actually doesn't appear all that much in the gospel of Matthew compared to other places. And, but he realized, though, his friend was a a literary major as an undergrad, and he thought about it, and he said, yes, even though the word count isn't as high, nevertheless, he, he realized his friend was right, that the theme really is there. So, um, but nevertheless, the word itself is there 300 times. That's pretty significant. Now, Spurgeon, who was a 19th century English Baptist minister in London, um, was known for holding to a form of covenant theology. Spurgeon goes so far as to say that covenant theology is the gospel. Um, Listen to what Spurgeon says on this subject. Spurgeon says, the covenant, the covenant sealed with blood. And he said, how I wish Christ's ministers would spread more and more of this covenant doctrine throughout England. He who understands the two covenants, and by that I think he means the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, he who understands the two covenants has found the marrow of all theology. But he who does not know the covenants knows next to nothing of the gospel. Now the covenant often came with an oath. All right, So we saw, for example, uh, in the book of Hebrews, verse 16, chapter 6, for men swear by one greater than themselves with them an oath given as confirmation. 
We see that with God and Abraham. He promised, and that promise was reiterated then to Isaac when God appeared to Isaac. So the covenant involves an oath or a promise. It often in, it, it is uh, often um, established by blood that there is a sacrifice, and then often there is a fellowship aspect to it. So we see, for example, Isaac and the Philistines eating together before the Philistines go back to their home country. There is this eating of the meal. We saw it last week in Exodus chapter 24 uh, when the elders uh, went up and ate a covenantal meal in the presence of God. So there, there is uh, this bond. There, it is accompanied by an oath or a promise, and then it's sealed with a cutting or the, the blood. Um, how is it that Abraham is going to receive this great promise from God? God himself takes a self-maledictory oath. He, he swears that he himself will be torn asunder if this does not come to pass. And we find in the prophets, too, when the people of God had backslidden, what is it that the prophets are always doing? They're prosecuting the covenant. They're saying, you know, remember the covenant. Remember the obligations of the covenant. That God would be your God and you would be his people. And you have said all that the Lord says we will do. And so when the people are uh, backsliding, the prophets would come to them and call them to repent of those sins. So for example, in Jeremiah chapter 34, the people of God were holding their fellow Hebrews in slavery. And they were not to do that. They could hold a foreigner in bondage, but they were not to hold their brethren in such a state. And so Jeremiah calls them to repentance, and he does so by way of the covenant. If you look uh, at Jeremiah chapter 18, Jeremiah chapter 18, and look at verse 34. Jeremiah chapter 18, and verse... That's not what I want. I got the wrong verse or chapter. Let me keep going. Uh, Sorry about that. Let me get that. That reference is wrong. Let me keep going. So the covenant is a a bond between two parties. It uh, involves an oath. It involves blood. And then, uh, says Dr. Duncan, the covenant is... Sovereignly administered. God is the one who lays down the ordinances of the covenant, the conditions. And so, for example, you can turn to the book of uh, Exodus in chapter 20, where we have the Ten Commandments. And we read that God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the, the sovereign speaking here. This is the This is the king in the suzerain treaty here. And here are the conditions, he says. 
You know, I brought you out of slavery. I brought you out of Egypt. And then he begins these commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. And he goes through uh, the Ten Commandments. These are not suggestions, but these are the very terms in which the covenant will be upheld. And so we see that uh, the, con- the, the covenant um, is an interesting thing. People ask, is the covenant um, unilateral or is it bilateral? And Dr. Ligon Duncan says the answer is yes. It is unilateral in that God sovereignly condescends to his people and enters into that covenant with us and sets the conditions of that covenant, but that those conditions are a a binding on us, that we agree to those conditions. And so it is both unilateral and bilateral. The covenant is sovereign by God's sovereignty, bringing it and imposing it, but the covenant is mutual. We do agree to be his people. We do confess that Jesus is Lord, not only our Savior, but Jesus is our Lord, and we will obey him. Now, the first covenant, the covenant of grace in the garden with Adam, it was sovereignly established. God condescends to Adam and establishes this covenant, which we saw last week, a covenant of works. Now, God was not obligated to enter into a covenant with anybody, but he did choose to enter into a covenant with Adam because of his love for Adam. And um, his grace and his love would be the animating principle of the covenant, but the covenant in this sense is unilateral. But the covenant of works is also bilateral. It was a relationship, and it was, in a sense, mutually agreed upon that Adam could eat of any tree in the garden, but of the one tree he would not eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The relationship necessitates something that is bilateral. We also see that God sovereignly administers the covenant. He establishes the covenant. He sovereignly administers the covenant. Man does not bargain with God. God is sovereign. God is Lord. We are a vassal. Remember, we are but dust. We are but clay that has been brought to life by the power of God. So the nature of the relationship and its obligations are declared by God alone. In this sense, the covenant is unilateral. Again, this is all coming by way of Ligon Duncan's material on this subject here. But it is also bilateral in that it is a real relationship. Now, as I said last week, this is something that I think evangelicals can get their mind around because evangelicals of many stripes, love to talk about having a personal relationship with God, having a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's, a, I think, a helpful way for us to explain covenant theology might be at this point to show people that this is the essence of the relationship here. Well, that is, what's the, how, what is the <laughs> defining the relationship, shall we say? <laughs> it, is, it is the covenant here. And there are two parties in this covenant. 
and the covenant is specified and it has conditions and there are obligations that need to be fulfilled by both parties. And thirdly, says Duncan, God sovereignly fulfills the conditions of the covenant himself. God enters into the covenant. He establishes the conditions of the covenant. But then, of course, by God's grace, he fulfills the conditions. Because why? Because we have broken the conditions by our sin. We can no longer fulfill the covenant of works. But that doesn't mean the covenant of works is gone. The covenant of works is still binding upon all of humanity. And so God must fulfill the the condition for the covenant of works. How is he going to do it? Well, he does it, of course, through his son by sending Jesus Christ to be the next Adam, to be the next righteous man. Nobody after Adam is righteous, and so nobody can fulfill that obligation except Christ. The son must become a true man. He must take on our humanity so that he can fulfill the conditions as a man. And that's what we were talking about this morning, weren't we? We were talking about the necessity, you know, as Anselm says, why the God-man? Well, the reason is because God must take on human flesh to fulfill the conditions. The conditions have to be met and fulfilled by a man. An angel can't fulfill the conditions for us and then be a substitute for us. So it is, it is necessary that God is the one who fulfills the conditions, and it's necessary that God also be a man. Thus the Son, Christ, both God and man in one person. And he alone is the one who can enter into this covenant, born, be born into this covenant. Remember, what does the Apostle Paul say? That, that Christ was born of a woman, made under the law. Why? What's the emphasis there? Why was he called under the law? Well, because he's fulfilling this role of the second Adam. He has to be under this law in order to fulfill it for us. You, you can't just say, okay, the covenant of works, that didn't work, you know, and, and just crumple it up and throw it in the trash. As though, okay, that covenant never happened. And, and I'll just wink at that and we'll just try this other covenant. No, the the first covenant still has to be fulfilled in order for us to receive the benefits of the covenant of grace that he makes with Adam and Eve after the fall. Jesus must fulfill the condition of the garden. And, And what is the condition? The condition is now perfect obedience. And so Jesus Christ, born of a woman, made under the law, fulfills all these conditions in order to secure the salvation that Adam lost for us. And that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ now receives the merit of those fulfilled conditions. That's your righteousness that you stand with before the presence of God. It's the merit of Jesus Christ and his active obedience as the mediator of this covenant of works for us which we receive in the covenant of grace through faith in him. So Christ fulfills the conditions on behalf of his own people. And Duncan says, here lies the grace in the covenant of grace. God fulfills for man the conditions himself on man's behalf by sending Jesus Christ to become a man, to fulfill the conditions, bear the curse of the covenant for our failure. 
and the curse falls on Jesus Christ on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the curse of the covenant is being laid upon the head and shoulders of Jesus and the full wrath of God's judgment is following all those sins. So the covenant of grace is unilateral in that God is the one who freely chooses those who he will elect. Not everybody will enter into the covenant of grace. That's the unilateral part of it. But it is also bilateral in that those who are elected by God, we do enter into a mutual, real relationship with God. We say his yoke is easy, his burden is light. I delight to do his will. Oh, how I love thy law. These are, these are things that we agree to. And so the, the covenant of grace is unilateral in his election. It is bilateral in the mutual relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the covenant is conditional in that God does not forgive us without justice being done to Jesus Christ for our sins. And yet this same covenant is unconditional because God chooses to fulfill our conditions on our behalf. <clears throat> You know, uh, Ligon Duncan, and I heard Ferguson make the same point at a Ligonier conference too. If you read Paul in Romans chapter 1 and 2, what really excites Paul in those opening chapters of Romans is the idea that God is both just and the justifier. It is God is the one who is just and merciful. His justice is satisfied by the propitiation of his wrath through Jesus Christ and the mercy that is given to those who will believe. I think I'm going to stop here. There is still yet more notes. Um, and I don't know because the, the weeds get even thicker. <laughs> the deeper we go into this, and it might be too much for a general audience. So let's stop here tonight. Let us.